It is a great privilege to be able to preach God's Word in this church. And probably uh, nobody but a preacher or a pastor could understand my saying that. Um, certainly many of you have some sense of what I'm saying. But uh, it's, it's no small thing to be able to serve a church where you know that the people expect you to be a minister of the Holy Spirit and not of your own ego. Yesterday I told somebody that I was dreading preaching today, and the person said, well, he said that, you know, basically, this wasn't exactly the way you say it, but this is basically, that's good, because I really don't want to hear you. I want to hear the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's such a beautiful thing. I remember this uh, Methodist woman preacher, when I first went into the ministry, I used to visit her in the nursing home because she was godly. And I asked her, I've told some of you this before, I asked her one day if she would listen to my sermons every week and critique them and tell me how I could improve. She said, well, yes. She was, I think, 91 or 92. And then I got a scratched out postcard that week. Dear Pastor Bailey, no, no, I repent. I will not do that. Uh, You know, forget yourself. Uh, It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. No, I won't listen to your sermons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the text this morning is a text that really gets at the nub of this issue. And really, uh, I have to tell you, because you love me and you've known me long enough, I have to tell you that This was uh, the verse that I've chosen for the title of this uh, sermon. was one of Rita Cuffey's favorite texts. Who was Rita Cuffey? Rita Cuffey was an older woman in this congregation who was godly and who prayed. Uh, Rita and I had the privilege of meeting every week. I gave her prayer requests. She was faithful in praying for many of us. Uh, She was wise. She did rebuke me. She was a woman. She did rebuke me. And it was biblical. Um, So I'll just say, Rita's very much on my mind today. Now, where are we? Well, yesterday morning, Dave Carell, Pastor Carell, opened up the teaching of Scripture concerning the Christian life being a battle. We have two men here who have just left Iraq. There's Will, and Dan is... Alan, I'm sorry. Alan is here. Welcome home and thank you. And it's very difficult to understand the life of a Christian without having anything to do with war. Because Scripture is absolutely filled with illustrations and specific commands. uh, Illustrations of battle, illustrations of the risks of battle, the failures in battle, the successes in battle, why the failures happen, why the successes happen and commands to us to do battle. The Bible does say to us that the Christian life is the life of battle. The Bible commands us to put on the full armor of God. Now, we all know that. But ask yourself the question, how frequent is this theme in the world today? It's not frequent at all. If you go into mainline churches, you'll find that about 20 years ago, was the apex of them removing from their hymnals intentionally the hymns that had a military theme. The first one to go was Onward Christian Soldier. Soldiers of Christ Arise. And they would take them out of the hymnals. Why? Because they said, our God is bigger than that. 
Our God is not a wrathful God who demands a sacrifice. Our God is a God that shows us a better way. And so, you know, they were pulled out of Scripture. I am fascinated when I go and still have opportunity to be under the ministry of mainline pastors to see how they not just remove it from the hymnal, but also remove it from the Word of God. This last week I was at a, um, at a service. And in the service, uh, the person that was there started reading Psalm 139. And as soon as the person started reading Psalm 139, I said to the people I was with, watch. It's going to happen. Look at your Bibles at Psalm 139. You see, it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. O oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path. And my lying down are intimately acquainted with all my ways. It's a beautiful meditation on God's knowledge of each of us as individuals. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Heaven, Sheol, wings of the dawn. Even there your hand will lead me, verse 10. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. And then, you remember, uh, uh, what's his name, Brand and Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, that book some of you remember reading it. Well, it got its title from the next section. For you form my inward parts. You have woven me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the summit! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So here's one of the most precious chapters of Scripture. Intimate. Intimate and precious. And at that very point, the pastor skipped over the coming verses. It always happens. Always. Why? Well, look at them. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. And, you know, every time I read this in a hospital room, wherever I read it, I always think, you know, does that have to be there? I understand why people skip it. You know, we want to heal. And God always gives us the truth. Always gives us the truth. Always. And so here we have this part that we don't like it. None of us like it. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? (laughs) And do I not loathe? We're not supposed to loathe anyone, are we? Do I not loathe those who ride up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred or perfect hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And so, of course, all of us want to see those verses skipped over. We don't like battle. We don't like war. We don't want to have a sword. And we certainly don't want the Word of God to be a sword. And so our country is filled with churches where the Word of God is never a sword except to Hollywood and to Las Vegas, and to the university, and to those nasty sociologists, and to all the sodomites. And it absolutely is impotent within the church of God. 
None of us ever have any surgery needing being to be done on us after we have asked Jesus into our hearts. None of us are like Veruni. I mean, that poor woman, she didn't get it right the first time, so God had to whop her again. But hopefully, you know, after three months, she's gotten it, and she's not an idol-making factory anymore, and now I just need to preach peace, peace, peace to her. Right? Right? You see? None of us like war. War is what you send young men off somewhere else to do, and hopefully not your young men. And if you're rich, they won't go. War is something that, if you're a Democrat, you know is never right. And don't worry, I'm not a Republican. (laughs) But, you know, the, the Democratic Party has to sort of argue that they do have some commitment to defense. Why? Because in a decadent nation... War is never right because we're so busy enjoying the pleasures of riches. And then we, you know, we go out into nature. As you all see the dead deer here on the way here, God did that. God did that. Okay. We say that God is love while all nature red in tooth and claw. But in the church, it's not to be. And so David hammered us. He said, Conflict is what God has called us to. Conflict first with ourselves, then with our families, then with our brothers and sisters in the church. You say, oh, no, he said that they may be one as thou and I are one. His high priestly prayer was for unity. Yes, the only way unity ever comes is through conflict in the church of Jesus Christ. Because when you stop doing conflict in the church of Jesus Christ, false practice and false doctrine rule. The church never stops reforming. So David opens this up to us. And then what happened yesterday? Well, the second thing that happened was that David Wagner, Pastor Wagner, Dr. Wagner. How many of you think David should be made a doctor? Come on, raise your hands if you think so. David, David, you now have an honorary doctorate. (laughs) All right. And David, I'm not making fun of you. You are a doctor of the church. David then got up and he drew the picture for us of three major periods of conflict in the church and the unbelievable riches we've gotten from them. The doctrine of Jesus Christ and the incarnation and Athanasius. I can't believe you didn't say it. Contramundum. You know, Athanasius against the world. And then the Reformation, Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. And then J. Gresham Machen, he didn't tell the end of the story of Machen. Soon after the reform movement against the modernists, known as fundamentalism at the beginning, evangelicalism was an effort to make fundamentalism kinder and gentler. Soon after Machen took a stand at Princeton, he ended up getting booted and defrocked from the Presbyterian Church. A great sadness happened, which was that there was a division again, immediately. And the division this time was between Machen and his friends, many of whom uh, did not believe that alcohol was wrong and were not dispensationalists, and Carl McIntyre and his friends, who were teetotalers, 
who believed that no Christian would ever smoke and who were opposed to dispensationalism. Immediately, there was another division. Look at the Reformation. Immediately, Calvin and Luther divided over the sacraments. You see this? And so Machen then, a few years later, was he started Westminster Seminary, and then he was up uh, speaking, preaching in North Dakota. And uh, he fell sick, and in just a few days he died. And that was the end of J. Gresham Machen. And so we look at the church through history, and we look at this denomination in the seminary that Machen, this great warrior, this great hero of the faith, founded. And what is the Orthodox Presbyterian Church today? Maybe 40,000? Smaller than uh, what Rick Warren says he runs on Sunday morning. And so David described this. And then we talked about the battles today because it doesn't make any sense to lay tombs on or to lay garlands on the tombs of the dead prophets and to have no living prophets, right? And so we looked at what's going on in our Bible colleges, in our Christian colleges, and in our seminaries. And what we saw is that these places that were founded by men who were committed to the Word of God and to despising all the, the baubles of the world, all right, have consistently now what? What have they done? They've compromised the truth of Scripture for the sake of what? Well, largely for the sake of tuition. You know, uh, things become institutions. Uh, you have ten pastors on the staff, the church has grown, then you need to have the church uh, stay that size or you have to start getting rid of people, right? Same with uh, seminaries and uh, uh, Bible colleges. Now, open your Bibles to Isaiah 30. And let's see if this is a new or an old theme among the people of God. Isaiah 30, verses 1 to 26. This is the Word of God, and it's eternally true. But before we read it, I want to read a quote from Martin Luther, all right, which we haven't read this weekend, but it is sort of the, uh, the periscope within which we're doing all our viewing this weekend. If, says Luther, I profess... With the loudest voice and clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly, I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. In other words, it is always the way of God in our hearts. Remember, I, I quote Moody saying this, that God's Holy Spirit always finds the thickest part of our heart and chooses precisely that point to bash. <laughs> Well, it's kind of opposite. I'm mixing metaphors, but think of the church as a tremendous fortress. And the enemy, the evil one, comes and he attacks the wall. Most soldiers that say they belong to Christ focus their defensive efforts everywhere but where the wall is under attack. 
Luther says it doesn't matter that it is the wall, that it is Scripture, that they are truths of God's. If they're not where the enemy is attacking, you are professing Christ. You've got on the epaulets, you know, you have the uniform, you've got the gun, you're, you're active, but you have not yet begun to confess Christ because a true soldier of Christ is tested at the breach in the wall, right? Now, you're all with me. It's not hard to understand, right? Now, let's look at Jerusalem and Judah. Verse one, woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine and make an alliance, but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation for their princes are at Zoan and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. The oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev through a land of distress and anguish from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who can't profit them. Even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Now go and write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said. Now, isn't it interesting? I have to stop here. How many of you know the next sentence by heart? Come on, don't lie. Come on, raise your hand. It's like number one in the promise book that, uh, box that used to be on the table. Okay? What does it say? In repentance and rest, in quietness and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. And then what does it say? Any of you ever memorize what it says next? But you were not willing. Now, the, the world is separated into two groups of people. One group of people loves it, and the other group of people hates it. To one, it is the breath of life, and to the other, it is the stench of death. Now, which is it to you? You say, oh, I love that quietness, that trust part. I say to you, do you love, but you were not willing?
Verse 16, and you said, no, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until your left is a flag on a mountaintop and is a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those, all those who long for him. O people of Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images, overlaid with silver, and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, Be gone! And then He will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground and it will be rich and plenteous. On that day your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also the oxen and the donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days. On the day, the Lord binds up the fracture of His people and heals the bruise that was inflicted. Is that what it, is that what it says? Is that what it says? That's not what it says. I snookered you. What does it say? The bruise that he has inflicted. Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you love God? You cannot love God if you refuse to acknowledge that your bruise is His infliction. God doesn't have other people do His dirty work. Who respects a father that refuses to discipline his son knowing one day that he will have a police officer and a judge and a foreman? Does anybody respect a father like that? You like to quote, I'm convinced that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We love to quote that. What is that work? So what was Veruni three months after she was baptized? Was she a Christian? Was she a daughter of God? And it's so... Didn't he have a victorious Christian life message for her? Instead, he's telling her she's an idolater. A Christian can't be an idolater. And yet, Veruni told you that she had an idol and that she was not willing to give her idol up and that God, what? God loved her, right? You're all with me. God disciplined her, right? Well, yeah, I guess. 
God love disciplined her. <laughs> That's the truth. And what we see here is we see Sennacherib and Assyria coming to whoop up on Judah and Jerusalem. And who is Judah and Jerusalem? It is the people of God. Why would God do that? A loving father wouldn't do that. So what happens? Well, these are the people of God, and what do they do? They're just like Varuni. But, you know, Varuni's from Sri Lanka, and sometimes Sri Lankans coming out of a pagan religion, they make mistakes like that. You know, it's too bad, Varuni. You'll learn. Soon you'll be like a white American. You know. And you'll know that you don't have to repent once you become a Christian. <laughs> So what about the Israelites, the Judahites, the Jerusalemites? What happened? God disciplined them, didn't he? And he told them he was going to discipline them. So what did they do? Was repentance and quietness and trust their strength? No. The Bible tells us what they did. Look at your text. The Bible says that they did what? They executed a plan that wasn't God's, verse 1. They made an alliance that was not of his spirit, verse 1. And they added sin to sin. And how? Well, they proceeded to Egypt. They went down to Egypt. Now think about that. What did God do that they celebrated every Passover? He whooped up on Egypt big time. And so what are they doing now? Well, there's another threat. And instead of trusting on God in repentance, what do they do? They go down to Egypt. Now, Come on, is there one believer in this room that is not constantly being disciplined for going down to Egypt? That's our lives. And so none of us fail to identify with this. All of us have made our pacts with Egypt. I've done it. You've done it. Your godly grandmother did it. It's the nature of the Christian life. We go to Egypt. Now, what Egypt is for each of us is a little bit different. But let's not think about all of us as individuals for a second. Let's think about the American church. What is Egypt for the American church? It's some seemingly overwhelmingly powerful and strong and rich thing that if you go and take your wealth to it, that it will then protect you from some even worse enemy. All right? Now, what is this like huge, powerful thing that the church makes an alliance with because it's afraid of something even worse? Well, we could all come up with all kinds of different ways that the church today does that, right? All of us could. It's not difficult to do. We know that if we sell Starbucks coffee in our lobbies of our churches, that we will have a positive like associational thing. We'll be like culturally engaged especially with the women. Okay? And there will be a certain cool factor of our church that will bring a certain number of people who will tithe a certain amount. I mean, come on, it's that clear. And so, and, and it used to be that there was a certain kind of donut, but that donut kind of got messed up with its um, corporate kind of thingamabugger, so now it's just Starbucks. Um, 
And you say, well, it's not an idol. And I say, okay, it's not an idol, but it sure is a compromise. Uh, my home church made a mistake. We all make mistakes as churches. Their mistake was for a little while they, they gave you free coffee that wasn't Starbucks, but you had to pay in the foyer for coffee that was Starbucks. That's a howler. And I'm sure everybody that made the decision is like completely ashamed, like I have been many times for things I've done. All right? Okay. I'm not whooping up on them. But it is a howler. You know, okay, so what else? Well, you know, from yesterday, there's no question in my mind that the principal Egypt that the church is going to today is the Egypt of sexual immorality, of the sacrifice of human life for the convenience of those who are powerful and of feminism. In other words, anthropology. Old people are to kick off. And old people who are godly will want to kick off and help themselves kick off so they're not a burden on the young. Because, of course, being a burden doesn't do anything sanctifying on any of us, right? I mean, what's sanctifying about having your diaper change when you're old? For you or for the person doing it? And here's the answer. A huge amount! Unbelievably sanctifying. So sanctifying that, you know, would you kiss? Just go, go. Kill yourself. Because I don't want to be sanctified. Unborn children. You know, I would really prefer to not be pregnant when I get married. And I'd really prefer to have a father for my child. And I'd really prefer that my girlfriend, who really isn't my girlfriend but a one-night stand, wouldn't embarrass me with the presence of a human life. And so here's the 400 or 500 or how much uh, the wicked murderers called doctors charge today. Biggest business of Planned Parenthood. Biggest business. And so America, 1.3, 1.4, 1.2 million a year, year after year after year. You drive by the the killing place in this town and, and business goes on. And then there's feminism. You know, how many times do I have to tell you that God's doing a new thing? There's a trajectory of egalitarianism. Uh, Those of us with faith understand that today God's doing a new thing. Paul and Jesus weren't quite courageous enough to face the culture of their time. But today, uh, smart people who talk loudly in restaurants and use big words and have the terminal degree understand what Paul was really headed to. He didn't quite make it. But today we can help him and Jesus. We can help Jesus. You know, 12 apostles who were men. Jesus really couldn't face that one down. And so what does the church do? The church has women elders, women pastors. The church says that husbands aren't the head of the wife. The church has taken the word obey out of the liturgy that's been used since the 11th century Roman Catholic Sarum rite. Even Princess Diana used those words and promised to obey her husband. And the church has eviscerated the biblical content of the wedding liturgy. Eviscerated. It's gone. It's dead. Okay? And you say that the church doesn't go down to Egypt? Why has the church done that? Well, because, you know, feminism is such a powerful force. It's the only orthodoxy in the Western world. We are all egalitarian utopians today. We all believe women should go over and shed their blood for their husbands who are home caring for the children. You know, send them up in rockets, let them be blown to smithereens, and the little children that are at home can know their mommy was a heroine. 
or no, I guess like waiters now, everybody's a waiter, everybody's an actor, so they're heroes. And you know, the church, it has to be culturally engaged. It has to modify its message a little. Make a compromise with Egypt. Make a compromise with Eleanor Smeal. Make a compromise with Hillary Clinton. Make a compromise with the feminists, you know? Okay, fine. I admit you can't have them as women elders and women pastors. But you know, we could... You know, did you notice that all the people leading the band here today, were they were all men. What's with that, you know? Aren't women able to be musicians? Yes, of course. Yes, we do have women musicians who do come up. But you know something? When you got men that are chomping at the bit to lead, why go down to Egypt? Why signal? You know, don't worry, I'm, I'm reasonable about this, you know. We'll always have a woman up front to show. We believe women should be up front because, you know, the culture will judge us harshly if we don't do that. And so in my own denomination, you've got all these muckety-muck churches that have a reputation for being culturally engaged that do what? Well, they have women serve communion. They're not elders because the Constitution says they may not be. And the people say that's good that they're not. But then when it comes time to serve the Lord's Supper, the women come forward and serve the Lord's Supper. And the women are the ushers. And the women lead in the Scripture reading. The women lead in prayer. And the women are called minister of congregational life. People. What is this? This is going to Egypt. This is thinking that feminism and that, you know, the, the, the decline of the value of human life and sexual immorality, you know, that we can't stand against these things. That we'll be overwhelmed, you know, that we'll be carried off. And so just a few little nuances, just a few little compromises, just a few little winks. And our church will grow. Because Egypt will come down on our side, and it's powerful and wealthy. And we won't fall to Sennacherib into Assyria. And you know, it's very interesting that uh, all the riches go to the pagans. All the riches go down to Egypt. Did you notice down in verse 6? It says, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on camels' humps to a people who can't profit them. The church prostitutes herself to the powerful forces of our society. She modifies her message. She sends all her wealth. The wealth of the church, the wealth of the church is that God is the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. The wealth of this church is that God is a father. Not a mother, not an unsexual, asexual, aberrant, neutered thing. And the wealth of this church is that God marked the human race with his fatherhood by calling the human race man. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Adam. That's the treasure of the church. And all the evangelical publishing companies are all on board with each other, removing all the fatherhood of God from the language of the Old and the New Testaments. 
So we take all our wealth, we pile it on our camels, on the humps, take it down to Egypt, say, okay, now you're going to protect us. So we take all the words out of Scripture. We take you dioi Jews out of the book of John. We say them. We say Jewish leaders. We say something other than what the Greek says. And we think that now we've compromised with feminism. We've compromised with the incredible hatred of anti-Semitism in our culture. We've cleaned the Gospel of John up a little, you know. Gone down to Jerusalem. No. Gone down to Egypt. And now Egypt will come back to us, right? Is that what happens? Well, look at the text. The wealth goes down, and then what does God say? God says this. Verse 3, Therefore the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. What is the shame and humiliation of the church today? The shame and the humiliation of the church is that the pagans haven't done us, to us. It's not Thomas Jefferson that did it to us, where he took, you know, the scissors and cut out of the Bible the things he didn't like. We did it to ourselves. We ourselves, our publishing companies that we owned, have cut out of Scripture our wealth, have given it to the evil one, have gone down to Egypt, and now our shame is the fact that we have prostituted ourselves to a God who isn't a God, to a country that has no power to protect us, and God's going to give it to us. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? And I say, okay, let's keep reading. It says this, It'll be your shame, it'll be your humiliation for their princes, their ambassadors... Everyone, verse 5, will be ashamed because of the people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. And you say, hey, Tim, you're old and in the way, because if you look at the Christian Booksellers Association, which is now called, I believe, Christian Marketing International, something like that. If you look at it, it's big business. I'll bet it's $5 billion a year now. And if you look at the publishing companies, the Christian, they're all being bought up by Uh, publicly traded companies. Rupert Murdoch and News Corp now owns Sondervan, right? Where you get your NIVs from. (laughs) So, Tim, guess what? It's not shameful. And it's not embarrassing. And it's not a reproach. It's actually successful. And you're the one that isn't. And you're just jealous and envious because you're insignificant and you're small. You know? I mean, face it, Tim. You're old and in the way. And God says to Isaiah, what? He says, now go, write it on a tablet before it, inscribe it on a scroll, verse 8, that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. Brothers and sisters, in America, there is a time to come. And you say, tell us nice things, prophesy illusions. I say, no, I won't do it. There is a reckoning to come. All the blood of the unborn children that are land hides will be made visible by God. Every single infant that has been sacrificed on the altars to our pagan gods, that blood will become visible. And don't tell me that you're a Christian and you don't hold membership in this nation. You do. This is your home. Every single Bible that has said that God's Word doesn't stand forever, that jots and tittles may be removed. Every single Bible, there will be an accounting. Every publisher, every person that benefited from the stock of News Corp, 
and Harper and Rowe and Zondervan. Every single author that quoted from that text and lied, saying that this is what God says when it's not what God says. Every preacher who paraded women in front of his congregation, serving communion so it could look like he was bowing the knee to Baal and therefore strengthening and building his church. Every single twisting, every time I've looked at you and said yes when what I was thinking was no. Every time your elders have said, you know, I really don't have the time or energy to rebuke her right now. Every single slightest unfaithfulness to God, there will be a reckoning as long as you're not a Christian. But if you become a Christian, then it's all okay. Right? Who are these people they're talking to? Who are they? Who is it? It's God's people. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament, these things were written down for you as examples. How could you read this chapter of Isaiah and not see its application to the evangelical church in America today? How? How can you do it? Well, you have to come up with a very perverse doctrinal system that allows you to escape everything but that single text that you know applies to the church today. And inevitably, it will be a positive one because you still demand that your prophets prophesy illusions. That's always the way we are as people. You say, wait, we? You're telling me you don't do that. Oh, no, I do it. You do it. I do it. We do it. That's the nature of being in this world, we demand illusions. Now, you can go on through the text and you can just see the theme being developed. Write it on a tablet before them. Notice, he doesn't say to Jeremiah, just preach it. He says, write it. And so now, today, we actually read about this specific people all through history, down to the end of history. These people, their deeds are recorded because... He was faithful. He did what he was commanded. He wrote it down. If he just said it, it wouldn't be there. But he wrote it down. And you have it in your lap. It's on the scroll. And it's being published here on this scroll. It's here. It was written down. You do it in sin, Tiki. I plead with you. I plead with you to agree with one another. It's written down all through history. These two women... It hammer and tongs against each other. <laughs> and God said, write it down. And so how do we know you do in Sintiki? How do we know Simon Magus? Hey, if I give you some money, will you give me that power? How do we know Judas? How do we know Peter? How do we know David? You know, some of you don't like David. <laughs> Why don't you like David? You don't like David because David was a true jerk of a husband. Write it down. <laughs> and who are all these people? Well, it's arguable, but I'd say they're the people of God. Aren't you glad the canon of Scripture is closed? How would you like to be an illustration in the Word of God? Well, you know something? You can tell the difference between a regenerate heart and an unregenerate heart by the answer to that question. Because if you belong to God, you would be delighted to have your sins used to warn other people away from them. 
Did you hear what David said? What an idiot. Someday he'll become an evangelical and know not to say that kind of thing in front of a congregation. Did you hear him? He starts reading the Bible, and then what does he do? Huh? It was obvious that he didn't grow up in the church. Not because church people don't sleep with women while they're reading the Bible, but because church people know better than to ever admit that publicly. And David just says, and then I had a relationship. And it was sin. And we go, David, please, for heaven's sakes, when are you going to learn? And judging by his size and the way he carries himself, I think the answer is never. And I praise God, and that's why he will be in the pastor's college. Because when the people demand an illusion from David, do you think he'll give it to them? <laughs> well, who knows? Time will tell. He'll probably be as sinful as I am. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen, verse 9, to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, what? This is the ground zero of who we are. Say to the seers, you must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get the hell out of the way. And that's not what it says, but that's how you'd say it. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Now, come on, people. Isn't that your heart? Come on, be honest with me. All right, forget you. Isn't that my heart? It is. Shut your mouth. <laughs> you know, chill out, dude. You like have no sense of proportion. You know, lighten up. Over in the book of Jeremiah, there's a parallel text. And the parallel text goes like this. Uh, Jeremiah 5, Declare this to the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, says, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But, but, but. This people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. For wicked men are found among my people, not found in the world, not found in Hollywood, not found in Las Vegas, not found in the Anglican Church, not found in the United Methodist Church, Wicked people are found among my people. Wicked men are found among my people. They watch like flowers lying in wait. They set a trap and what? They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They are fat. They are sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan. 
And you think, oh, come on, it's a New Testament, it's a new covenant, we're done with that. We don't have to do justice. We don't have to love mercy. We don't have to let justice roll down. We don't have to think about the oppressed and the orphans and the widows. They are fat, they are sleek, they also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish this people, declares the Lord, on a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? When I left the PCUSA, when our churches decided that they would choose God, no matter what, that they would choose God, And we all went to the Presbytery, and the Presbytery confiscated our property and our computers and our banners and the baptismal fonts made by our great-grandfathers and the cemeteries surrounding the church where our ancestors were buried. They took it all. And on the floor of that Presbytery meeting, by God's grace, they dismissed our church. Dismissed it. Unheard of in the PCUSA. Its courts, its refusal to acknowledge it was a legitimate vote, they recognized the validity of the vote. And afterwards, I had been on the top administrative leadership group of that presbytery. I was one of the senior members of that presbytery at that time because I'd stayed in one place. And I was offered the opportunity of saying goodbye. And do you know what I did? My goodbye was that text I just read to you. And I ended where I just ended. And my people love it so. And the thing that boggled my mind is I did that. And I did it with and in love. Was nobody in that room was upset at me. No one. Except a couple of women who had decided they would stay with the denomination and refuse to follow the elders into the new biblical PCA. And their faces were furious. Why? Well, because the mainline denominations are filled with people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's not offensive to them. They hear that and they think, well, that's an exotic specimen of poetic writing. But not people that have been under the preaching of the word. They know that the Holy Spirit has just found them wanting. They've been weighed and they've been found wanting. And my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? You say, that's Old Testament. I say, listen to Jesus. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But what? It has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, in their case, the prophecy of what? The prophet Isaiah. The prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Why did Jesus speak in parables? 
because it was his will that there would be a people who would not hear with their ears, see with their eyes, understand with their heart and repent. It is the will of God. God is glorified by both the wickedness of the wicked and their judgment and the righteousness of his son shed abroad on his people who believe. Neither of them has a corner on glorifying God. In other words, they both do. And it is the will of God that the authority and the justice and the holiness of God is vindicated in the sight of this world. God is not just allowing it to happen because He's impotent. He's not just sort of seeing it in a middle knowledge into the future where the middle knowledge kind of mediates the tension between what we know God is, which is love, and and what what some tight people who really are just sort of misbegotten think is the justice and the holiness and the truthfulness and the wrath of God. No, 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 no. God is love. In Him is the desire that not any should perish. And God is justice. And in Him is the wrath of God will be revealed against mankind forever and ever and ever. The worm that never dies and the fire that never goes out. Now, where are you? Do you love God and have faith in Him? I want to end with this. Notice that in the text it says this. Look at the text again. It says, and it's the pivotal verse in the whole section. It says, in verse 15, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel says, in what? In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. So, apparently you can separate the whole world into those who are repentant and at rest. And those who refuse. And apparently it doesn't stop when you're baptized. Apparently baptism isn't an inoculation against repentance. Apparently the life of a Christian is the life of repentance. And apparently faithful elders and faithful Titus II women and faithful daddies of their daughters are going to be calling their children to repentance forever until finally we're done with this body of sin and death and we enter the presence of God. We finally found a way to live in the presence of the Lord where there is no longer any sin. And it won't happen until you're dead. And any doctrine that teaches you that there's a way that you can sneak under the wire and get rid of that stupidity of Rooney, where three months after she's baptized, instead of pointing to her baptism, she has to repent of idolatry. Anything that tells you that's not the Christian life is going to Egypt. And if God loves you, God will give you Titus two women and mummies and daddies and older brothers and elders and deacons and fathers who will call you to repentance. They will say, this is the way. Walk in it. <laughs> and they'll say it to you personally. Did you notice? 
They're behind him and they're saying, whoop, 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 little bit to the right, little bit to the left. It's not proclamation. It's intimate direction of a teacher. In other words, apparently, those who refuse to go to Egypt, those who refuse to heal their people lightly, those who refuse to lie on those who refuse to allow their visions to be taken away from them, those who refuse to give out illusions, are those who say, both from the pulpit and in person, God is holy. And the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. I'm in it. You're in it. Ain't no way to escape it. Now, Okay, I gotta, I gotta use church language now, but there's something I want to say. I won't say it, you know. But at Paris Island, they'd say it. Get yourself in gear. Pick up your rifle, soldier. And what is the rifle? It's the Word of God. It is not all that absolutely hideous stuff that News Corp is making money off of, published by Zondervan. Come on. Oh, there's an endless variety of things, prophets willing to take your attention off the Word of God. The men that are faithful do not point to themselves. Don't point to their pictures on the covers. Don't go to conferences and spread their name all around and suck in your money. They give you the Word of God. And the minute you're able to be independent of them, they kick you in the rear end so you hate them. And the umbilical cord is cut. Do you understand that? Because it's God. It's His Word. It's His way. It's His path. It's His glory. All right? And so God says, you repent. You shut up and be quiet. And you don't need to worry about Assyrian Sennacherib. (laughs) You don't need to worry about feminism. You don't need to worry about being pregnant and unwed. Don't worry. God will send you a husband. Don't worry. God will pay your medical costs. Just be willing to be ashamed publicly and keep your mouth shut. And God will take care of you. Okay? This is the gospel. God. It's God. It's the gospel. It's who we are. Now, we have the opportunity of coming to the Lord's table this morning. If the elders would please come forward. And this table is not...